would like to read to us a passage out of Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 10, beginning at verse 13, reading down through verse 17 of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 is probably one of the most glorious statements in all of Scripture. Let's see how the Apostle Paul explicates or opens that verse up for us. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity and time together. We ask that you would be pleased to bless our time with your Holy Spirit teaching us that we might live more to the glory and praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. What I attempted in some sense to do last night was to give us a helicopter view or an airplane view of what we would consider the Puritan era. At least we would say it probably began around 1524 with William Tyndale, ended it probably as a movement at the end of 1688 when the um, uh, Glorious Revolution came, the Act of Toleration was done, and the movement as a movement was in some sense no longer necessary. Remember, part of the reason for the movement was trying to bring further reformation to the church. And the struggles that were going on religiously and politically had divided the church in such a way that many were not allowed to worship and were being imprisoned because of their worship. With the act of toleration, they no longer had to stay in the Church of England, so they no longer had to be agitators in the Church of England trying to get it to reform because they could come out and establish their own churches and began to preach and do the work of the ministry. So really, the Presbyterian Church, that's when it really started to grow, if you could call it growth, uh, in England in the way that it had in Scotland uh, just to its north. But what I want to do this morning in this first lecture is now take us from the airplane and walk us a little bit around the forest. I sometimes tell the students, you need to always look at a subject from two ways. You need to look at it in terms of the overall site, the whole forest, and then you need to get down and examine the different kinds of trees that you would find in that forest. One of the dangers is is that you can lose the forest because of the trees, or you can lose the trees because of the forest. And so we really want to balance that. So that's what I'm trying to do today, giving that bird's eye view that airplane view last night and giving a little bit more of a particular looking at the different trees. And I pretty much mentioned all the areas last night that I will look at a little bit more closely as I look at this this morning. 
But I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to, in this section, use someone, uh, William Perkins' book uh, on the art of prophesying, and then also use our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, to kind of give us the culmination or the high point, where, in a sense, one of the things we have in our Confession of Faith is the summary of all the teaching that was going on by the Puritans as they were trying to reform the Anglican Church, as they were trying to reform uh, the Church and the people of God. They were unsuccessful in terms of the Church, but especially through the preaching that begins with in the 1570s with William Perkins, they were successful in the lives of people. Okay, so that's really where the heart of the movement is. It's in it's in the church. It's in the in the people, and the reason for that is the Puritans were pastor theologians. They understood their doctrine, but they understood doctrine to be life. They understood doctrine to be practice. They understood doctrine to be experimental or experiential. Doctrine was only necessary if it was to change the life of those who believed that teaching. And in some sense, if a doctrine didn't change your life, if it was extraneous, then it was just kind of set aside. It was unimportant. But they, first of all, stressed God-centered living. And I had mentioned that in the very first uh, characteristic that I listed for the Puritans, that they emphasized a life shaped by Scripture. God-centered living. Life in the home. The Puritans would have agreed with the statement, your Christianity is only as good as it is at home behind closed doors. That if you were not living in the home a Christian life, then nothing else that you did had any real significance. Okay, And so they, first of all, began to look at the home. How do we reform the home, life in the home? And so they have many treatises on uh, prayer, how to conduct a prayer life, um, uh, in fact, probably the best summary of, of um, the Puritan idea of prayer is an individual that came after them, Matthew Henry, but who was a student of the uh, Puritans, and his work called The Method of Prayer. Remember, the Puritans in the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism give us a tremendous exposition of the Lord's Prayer how to pray in the home, what to pray for uh, in the home. And so we have this idea of prayer. But the Puritans also said that as you learn Scripture, you must meditate upon it. Okay? Um, uh, So you have works on meditation. Now we sometimes in our day and age hear the term meditation and we think of Eastern religions and and mantras and chants and all kinds of things. But there is a godly practice. The psalmist constantly says, on your word will I meditate day and night. So how many of us really know what meditation is? How many of us can really say, I meditate upon God's word day and night? Well, in the days of the Puritans, people couldn't answer that question either. So they gave great energy to try and teach God's people how to daily meditate and consume God's word. 
Without meditation, the Puritan said, the word will just go in one ear and out the other. That if the word is going to go from the ears to the heart, if it's going to shape the life, we must be those who chew the cud. And that's really how they saw it, as those who chew and meditate and roll over. And so they give a list of questions, for instance. They, the what, the when, the why, the how. So that as you go through and you read a particular text or session, section, you know what questions to ask and try to find the answers to, to that section. That's what meditating upon God's Word is. Now, the Puritans, in my mind, and I, don't, I haven't really found anyone who has said this because it wasn't until much later that they came up with the read the Bible in one year. The Puritans probably wouldn't have been in favor of that practice. Because reading the Bible in one year, you're reading so much you don't take time to chew the cud. You don't take time to meditate. The Puritans would say, we would rather you spend three or four days on a particular chapter and suck out all the morrow than for you to say at the end of the week, I read 30 chapters in the Bible. Because it doesn't profit you. That meditation is absolutely necessary. But also, they asked then the question, how do you successfully read the Scriptures? How are the Scriptures to be read so that they are profitable in your Christian life? Okay, So it's not just that you don't basically look at the Bible as far as they were concerned and say, don't read it too quickly so that you can meditate upon it, but how do you read it? What order? Do you just start at the Old Testament and read through to the end of the book of the Revelation? Or is there a way to read the Scriptures so that they are profitable to the soul? Now again, Matthew Henry, probably as a student of the, of the Puritans, basically said he never read the Scripture except on his knees, except when he was preaching. And one of the things that, that was basically uh, brought home by the Puritans in, in this particular case was the relationship of prayer, illumination, or reading the Scripture and illumination. That by prayer, reading the Scripture, the Lord will illumine His teaching to you. And so this reading of Scripture in this context was a labor. It was difficult to do. And they understood that it would be difficult to do. But they understood also that if there was going to be good, right living in the home, that there had to be that effective prayer, that effective uh, meditation, and that illumination that comes as we, by the Spirit, read the Scriptures of God. And so you have lots and lots of their material where in their applications in particular, they just keep hammering this point home again and again and again and again. So if we were to compare the 20th century, 21st century church in the way most Christians handle themselves at home compared to the way the Puritans did, we would know the answer why they flourish so much and we seem to be so weak uh, in the faith. <clears throat> but they also, well, well um, Pat Iperspock, Julie's mother, used to say to us, uh, who, as she was in our congregations, Pastor, you went from preaching to meddling. And one of the things about the Puritans were they were meddlers. They were unafraid 
to basically come into the home and examine the family and speak to them concerning their condition. And to speak to them concerning their condition. And they talked about all kinds of subjects. It's interesting, Richard Rogers, who I mentioned yesterday in the uh, uh, 1780s, basically writes a commentary on the book of Judges. Commentary on the book of Judges. And in that book, he actually begins to deal with the Christian home. And he takes the theme uh, of the book, All Men Doing What Is Right in Their Own Eyes, and basically contrasts that and says, Christians are, are a people that do those things which are right in God's eyes. And one of the areas that we're to do things that are right in God's eyes is in the family. Now, talk about a difference in attitude. Basically, Rogers says, young people do not have the discernment to pick a wife or a husband. And so that should be done by the parents. So, I mean, they were, they were dealing with every area of, of home life from, you know, how you date, who you marry, how you live in your home. Uh, this kind of teaching that most of us probably today in our age would be pretty shocked by to say, boy, this is really meddling. This is really getting down into the weeds. But it bore fruit because it caused people, whether they agreed with every single point, it caused them to seriously look at their life. It caused them to seriously ask the question, is the way of my home advancing the cause and the kingdom of Christ? The Puritans also, then, in terms of God-centered living, put a great emphasis on calling, vocation. Remember, the Roman Catholic Church, <clears throat> up until and still today, have always maintained a life structure of the secular and the sacred. And that if you lived just working in a normal job, then you really weren't a spiritual person. The way to be spiritual was to renounce all the things of the world, uh, livings, vocations, and become a priest or a monk or a nun, or some kind of uh, living in a monastery working for the church. And so there was this bifurcation of life, the sacred and the unholy, the sacred and the secular. Well, especially under the influence of John Calvin, the, the Puritans basically began to recognize that all callings are callings from the Lord, that every calling is sacred before God. That whether you eat or you drink or whatever job you do, if you do it to the glory of God that is praising to Him, then it is of value. And you are serving the Lord. And so simply being a minister in the church isn't going to bring you any greater honor with God than any other laborer who's in the church. And so they emphasize that to a great degree. One of the books, and I'll be in the next lecture using John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but one of the books that uh, affected Bunyan was Arthur Dent's The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven. And notice how he uses the term, the plain man. He's not talking about ecclesiastical authority or offices or anything like that. He's talking about the farmer. He's talking about the blacksmith. He's talking about the shop owner. He's talking about people in everyday life, the plain man's pathway. And his emphasis is that as you labor in your calling, walking before the Lord, in the home, 
God will bless and you will receive great reward for it. And so really where the Puritan uh, ideal begins is in that home. It then begins to flourish or blossom in everyday life, in work, as the Apostle Paul says, to remain in that calling wherein you were called. Um, And then it manifests itself in the church of Jesus Christ. God-centered living uh, in the church. Thomas Boston wrote a work called Church Communion in 1676, and he was actually more or less summarizing the teaching of the Confession of Faith and the Puritan emphasis that had come and really crystallizes here uh, in chapter 26 on the communion of saints. This is how, this is the Puritan view that was developed about how the people of God were to behave in the church. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, suffering, death, resurrection, and glory. We have union with Christ, and we all know that union. And it says, then it goes on to say, and being united to one another in love, We have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. Now, one of the things, if you you look to my resume, you will see I have always been associated with churches in the OPC called Covenant Community. And basically, it comes out of that Puritan teaching in chapter 26, article 1. This is what we are. We are the covenant people of God. We have been brought into Christ, the Puritans say. And as we are in Christ, we are in one another. And as we partake of Christ's gifts and graces, we partake of one another's gifts and graces. And that we are to live in the body uh, in that way. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. So basically, they have now tied what goes on in the home and the church to God's worship. So in other words, we come together as the family of God. And that emphasis on family, being the family of God, in that fellowship and communion, in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to our mutual edification. That was life in the church. That was being the body of Christ. That was caring one for another. That was, that was serving one another even as we have been served by Christ. And that was Boston's emphasis in that uh, book on church communion. Being in communion with God. He says, as tend to our spiritual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. I read in the bulletin for tomorrow morning that next Lord's Day is um, uh, where you'll celebrate the Lord's table. And in it it says we take a deacon offering. The Puritans were very strong in terms of that ministry, that diaconal ministry that went on in the church so that there was no part of Christ's body that suffered unless they all suffered. No part of Christ's body would be exalted unless they were all exalted. 
and they labored in that way to, to minister one to another's needs, always reminding us that we aren't doing this out of compulsion. We aren't doing this because we've been made to. We are doing this because Christ has worked in us. Christ has ministered mercy to us. And as he has ministered mercy to us, we would minister mercy to one another. And it is part of that mercy ministry that basically is reached out in the community, and especially later in the 1680s when Richard Baxter wrote The Reformed Pastor. And he has a section in there about going door to door and meeting people and finding out where their needs were and the church beginning diaconally to minister to those needs in the community in that parish where they were was that culmination of this Puritan understanding of a God-centered life. In some sense, I think in terms of the home that we could say the Puritans would have rejected or um, thought ill of somebody saying um, they're so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. And basically would have responded by saying, no, the problem is we're too earthly minded, so we're no heavenly good. And this is, this is a heavenly way of life. So that when they prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they sought to reflect the life of heaven in their homes, in their workplace, in their worship, in the church of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this next area will probably be a little bit longer than the previous and the last section uh, of the talk uh, today. And part of that is because my doctoral work is actually in um, homiletics. That's what I studied. I studied to know how to preach, and I actually did my work on how to use apologetics in my preaching. And in some sense, the Puritans were the greatest apologists uh, in their preaching. And it's reflected in their style, which is called the Puritan plain style uh, of preaching. And it goes all the way back to probably the first one really to influence this movement, which is William Perkins in his book, The Art of Prophesying, or The Art of Preaching. In the text that we looked at here in Paul's epistle to the Romans, I first want to point out a uh, uh, grammatical issue. Most of your Bibles probably read in verse um, uh, 14, How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, it says they've never heard of Jesus. So how can you call upon Jesus if you've never heard of him? But the actual Greek says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? heard. So it's not saying they've never heard about him, it's saying they've never heard him. And then Paul says, how will they hear Christ unless someone preaches to them? And how will someone preach to them unless they are sent? And that was really the Puritan understanding of preaching. And so there's two great claims made by the Puritans concerning preaching. And the first is, out of this text, that 
By preaching, we hear the voice of Christ. By preaching, we don't simply hear about Christ. We do, but not simply about Christ. We hear Christ himself. Now that's reflective of John's Gospel, chapter 10, where Jesus says, My sheep will know my voice, and they will hear me, and they will come unto me, and all that come unto me I will in no wise cast out. How did we become Christians? We became Christians because we heard the voice of Christ in the proclamation of his word. Therefore, faith cometh by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the voice of Christ. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word, who is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was Christ. We became Christians, the Puritans would say, because we heard Christ's voice. And so that brought them to a second great claim, which was preaching is Christ's proclamation of Himself. Preaching, then, is Christ's proclamation of himself through the instrumentality of men. Now, though the Puritans would never have argued that ministers were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they recognized the Spirit's work in the preaching of the Word in the same way that the Scriptures, the Spirit used instrumentality to bring the Word, the Spirit brings, uses instrumentality to bring the voice of Christ. Christ proclaims himself through the preaching of the word. And that led them to two major points concerning preaching. And again, most historians, most people will say that the real heart of, of Puritanism is their preaching. And the two main points is the uniqueness of preaching. Preaching is just not public speaking. Preaching is the public, verbal proclamation of the good news. And it is unique. Paul says to the Corinthians, We did not come to you with fancy words of men's eloquence, but we came to you in the demonstration and the power of the Spirit of God. And the Puritans um, uh, believe that. And so they're often described as thundering from the pulpit. They preached with authority. They preached with power. They preached with conviction. Again, but it was, it was a power, an authority, a conviction that, that was designed to grab your heart. To grab your heart. They enlightened your mind. They confronted your conscience. They wooed your heart to Christ. And they knew it, knew it as unique. And they knew it, therefore, to need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so you'll read a lot in the Puritans about the unction in preaching. Now, again, they often said to you... you, you you needed the unction of the Spirit. You needed the, the Spirit. Nobody can really tell you what that is. I think each preacher experiences it for himself. And unction is not just something that is automatic. You get in the pulpit, you start preaching, and you'll have the unction of the Spirit. 
And so the Puritans basically, in terms of the ministry and the preached word, as we'll see uh, in a moment, put great emphasis on prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Praying for God's spirit and his power in the, in, in the pulpit. And they, one of the ways that they looked at that is, is they looked at the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 when the uh, deacons are being appointed after they have the uh, division uh, in the church among the widows. They basically say, so that we can be set apart for the ministry, uh, for, for prayer in the ministry of the word. It doesn't reverse the order. It says, so that we may be put apart for prayer and out of prayer the ministry of the word. And so they they recognize that promise anointing, but they also recognize that we had to seek God's face for the spirit, not generally as we all possess it as Christians, not ordinarily or in terms of our ordination when we are anointed um, by the spirit in, in that context, but specifically For when we enter the pulpit, the Puritans would say, we need the anointing, the unction of the Spirit of God as we proclaim this word by this unique way. The Puritans said all preaching has two great aims. The ultimate aim, obviously, is the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so they sought to preach in a way that was God-pleasing and not man-pleasing. They didn't want to tickle the ears. Now, that's probably where um, they suffered the most in terms of persecution. um, uh, Because... They weren't afraid to say what needed to be said, no matter what the consequences were. And many of them were were dragged out of their pulpits and put into into prison for years and years and years because of their willingness for the glory of God to say what the Scripture says and say it plainly and clearly and directly to the conscience uh, of men. And they were willing to suffer that kind of uh, persecution. And what it did in the church was it made the people willing to hear that proclamation, to come and to gather. So most of these Puritans had congregations that at times were in the thousands that would come from all over the countryside to hear uh, the proclamation uh, of the word. And they and this is uh, at a time when sermons were, you know, uh, two hours long. You know, and people would, people, you know, you read some of them that the, the Puritans, uh, they used to use an hour, hour, uh, an hourglass. And, and it would talk about being flipped two or three times before he finished. Now, I don't know that many of you would like to sit through three hours of my preaching. You might like to sit through three hours of George's preaching. But most of us don't preach well enough that basically somebody would sit there for three hours. Now, why is that? Was it because those men were more gifted than we are? I don't think so. I think it's because they understood the uniqueness of preaching. They understood the necessity of it for the glory of God. And they gave themselves to that needed prayer, that seeking of God's face, that willingness to proclaim that word. And they saw the fruit of it in the lives of their congregations. Uh, as they minister. But secondarily, they also knew it, the ultimate aim being the glory of God, but the proximate aim being the salvation of men. They preach for your souls. 
They were like Jacob who wrestled with God and said, Lord, I won't let go till you bless me. They said, Lord, I won't let go till you save the people. They preached to see God's people saved. The foundation of their preaching was the person of Christ and the work of Christ. As I said earlier, uh, they believed in Christ-centered preaching. In all of their sermons, Christ was uh, uh, proclaimed. They took seriously the uh, gospel text where the men come to the disciples and they say, we would see Jesus. And they wanted men and women to see Christ in their preaching and only Christ uh, in their preaching. The Puritans in their preaching also understood the context and the different sorts of people that we preach to when we go to that task. And I want to just read uh, Perkins' instruction about the hearers in our congregation. And think about this. It's a lengthy reading, but I, but it's really captured for us in, again, the Westminster uh, Directory uh, for Worship. He says, There are those who are unbelievers and are both ignorant and unteachable. These must first of all be prepared to receive the doctrine of the word of God. Jehoshaphat sent Levites throughout the cities of Judah to teach the people and to draw them away from idolatry. This preparation should be partly by discussing or reasoning with them in order to become aware of their attitude and disposition and partly by reproving any obvious sin so that their consciences may be aroused and touched with fear and they may become teachable. So first of all, he says, there's a whole group of people in, in, in that you'll be speaking to who are unteachable, and your first step is basically to make them teachable. And you do that, he says, by uh, reproving any obvious sin, by becoming aware of their attitude and disposition, by reasoning with them, with talking with them, conversing uh, with them. And then he says, when there is some hope that they have become teachable and prepared, the message of God's word is to be given to them, usually in basic terms, concentrating on general points, such as Paul did at Athens in Acts chapter 17. If there is no positive response to such teaching, then it should be explained in more detail and a comprehensive way. But if they remain unteachable and there is no real hope of winning them, they should simply be left. Don't cast your pearls before the swine. Okay, If they're not going to be teachable, then the gospel not only draws people to it, but it also pushes people away. And Perkins recognized that. Secondly, he said, there are those who are teachable but ignorant. We should instruct such people by means of a catechism. Now, from Perkins' day all the way up to the Westminster Assembly, there were many catechisms written by different Puritan individuals, but really it's brought together in the production of the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism. And they were writing that. Think about that for a moment. They were writing that for those who are teachable but ignorant. And Shorter Catechism was actually not written for adults, but written for those 
children who were teachable, yet ignorant of the things of the faith. But they put a great emphasis on catechizing as a uh, foundation for preaching. A principle of faith, or it says, a catechism is a brief explanation of the foundational teaching of the Christian faith given in the form of questions and answers. This helps both the understanding and the memory. A principle of faith is a uh, biblical truth which directly or immediately concerns both with the salvation of men and the glory of God. So see how they come back to say, listen, what is the um, um, uh, aim of preaching? The aim of preaching is the glory of God and the salvation of men. What is the aim of catechizing? The aim of catechizing is glorifying God in the teaching of men. This distinct form of the catechism is the way it handles the elements or foundation points plainly by question and answer. As Tertullian put it, the soul is not purged with washing, but with answering. Interesting statement. He goes on then to say, number three, there are those who have knowledge, but never have been humbled. Here we need to see the foundation of repentance stirred up by what Paul calls godly sorrow. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. Godly sorrow is grief for sin simply because it is sin. And that was a major emphasis in the Puritans' teaching on the sinfulness of man. That repentance and sorrow wasn't because I got caught or it wasn't because it did something bad in my life. It was because sin was offensive to God. Sin is evil in itself and should be repented of. To stir up the affection, the ministry of the law is necessary, and this may give birth to a real sense of contrition in the heart or to terror in the conscience. Remember, enlightening the mind, confronting, convicting the conscience, to terror, to cause terror in the conscience, although this is not wholesome and profitable all on its own, it provides a necessary rem, uh, remedy for subduing sinful stubbornness and preparing the mind to become teachable. Number four, those who are in our congregations that have already been humbled. Here we must carefully consider whether the humbling that has already taken place is complete and sound, or only just begun and still light or superficial. One of the things that the Puritans would emphasize here in terms of their um, or give a defense of their using uh, the law in examining the heart was that he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much is humbled and he sees the exceedingly greatness of God's grace. And so he looks and he's humbled and he turns. Those who already believe, we teach them the gospel, the biblical teaching on justification, sanctification, perseverance. The laws applies to those who are no, no longer under his curse. And those then also we preach to have, who have fallen back, as well as uh, those, number seven, that recognizing that in a congregation we preach both to believers and unbelievers. And so our range of application needs to be that it, that it reaches everyone where they are. 
And that's, that's, now, what the Puritans were, if they weren't anything else in their preaching, they were masters of application. They knew how to take a Bible text and apply it to every one of those categories that we just basically looked at. And do that in a way that they were either challenging, comforting, exhorting, motivating, pushing on with that text to every one of those categories. Now, they would do it through saying something like, you may be here one today who uh, wants to follow Christ but don't understand how to do it. You're teachable, but you're ignorant. There are those of you who are here today who are ignorant, you don't understand the cause and the way of God, and you're unteachable, and your stubbornness will drive you straight to hell. There are those of you who are here today who are struggling with sin and how to be rid of sin, how to put off sin, how to put on righteousness. And this Bible text teaches us that this is the way we're to do this. This is what God would give us and direct us to do. Some of you are humbled before God because of the greatness of your sin. But let me tell you, beloved, the grace of God is greater than all of my sin. Yes, we are humbled by our sin. We are broken by our sin. We are brought down by our sin. But God's grace is an amazing grace. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His life for us. He rose again for us. He sits at the right hand of God making intercession for you sitting in this pew today. And you Christians who by God's grace are walking, take heed lest in pride you fall. Commit yourself each day, every day, to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are those of you in our congregation today who are nearing the gates of glory. And take courage. As you have lived well in Christ, you will die well in Christ if you hold on to that glorious truth that He will never leave you nor forsake you. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's God's gospel promise to all who believe. That's God's promise that can never be broken because God is not a God that He can lie. God is not a yes and no man. God is everything, yea and amen, in Christ Jesus. So in our directory of worship as to the manner of preaching, this is one of, one of the things that I regret often is that we are we accepted and know very well the confession of faith, the larger and shorter catechism, but we're very unfamiliar with the original directory for worship of the Westminster Divines and their book on the form of government. But I have learned a tremendous amount in, in uh, reading those documents. The outward servant of Christ, and this is in directory of worship on the preaching of the word. But the servant of Christ, whatever his method be, and they've talked about expository, catechetical, and um, topical preaching as all being valid forms of, of preaching. And so it says, no matter what your style is, no matter what you've chosen to be your method, it is to be performed painfully, not doing the work of the Lord negligently. It costs to be a preacher. Plainly, that the meanest may understand, 
delivering the truth not in the enticing words of men's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect, abstaining also from uh, all unprofitable use of unknown tongues, strange phrases, and cadences of sounds and words, sparingly citing sentences of ecclesiastical or other human authors, ancient or modern, be they ever so eloquent. We want the word and the word only. Thirdly, faithfully, looking at the honor of Christ, the conversion, edification, and salvation of the people, not at his own gain or glory, keeping nothing back which may promote those holy ends, giving to everyone his own portion, and bearing indifference, Respect, um, uh, bearing, bearing the indifferent, respect unto all, without neglecting the meanest or sparing the greatest in their sins. Fourthly, wisely, framing all his doctrines, exhortations, and especially his reproofs in such a manner as may be most likely to prevail, shewing uh, all due respect to each man's person and place and not mixing his own passions or bitterness. Fifthly, Gravely, as becomes the word of God, shunning all such gestures, voice, and expressions as may occasion the corruptions of men to despise him in his ministry with loving affection, that the people may see all coming from his godly zeal and heartily and hearty desire to do them good, and as those taught of God, persuaded in his own heart of the truth of the gospel. Do I believe what I preach? And, do, and is it evident that I believe what I preach when you hear that preaching? That was the uh, Puritan understanding of preaching. And it was that that made the movement really what it was. They lost the ecclesiastical battle but they won the hearts and homes of the English people. And it was because of their preaching. They wanted, again, a God-centered church. They believed wholeheartedly that God's Word not only tells us what He wants, but tells us how He wants us to do what He wants. God's word tells us that he wants us to go to every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And the Puritans believed that God's word taught us how he would accomplish that. And that accomplishment would be a church in a church that was God-centered and not man-centered. I gave that quote about um, Richard Cox saying that when this liturgy that didn't follow the Edwardian liturgy uh, was starting to be used in Frankfurt, Germany, and Cox was arguing and saying, uh, we want a church that has the face of an English church. And John Knox summarizes really the response that echoes through the decades after him. No, we want a church that echoes the Christ, the face of Christ. It's Christ's church. It's not man's church. And basically, you know, the problem in England was Henry wanted Henry's church. 
and even through Charles II until the Glorious Revolution, the English monarchs wanted an English church. And the Puritans were basically saying, we don't want an English church, we want Christ's church. And as a result of that, the young Scottish theologian George Gillespie wrote, Aaron's Rod Blooming. And then the second work he wrote, A Dispute Against English Popish Ceremonies. No, he doesn't say a dispute against Roman Catholic Popish ceremonies. He says English Popish ceremonies. And then he wrote 111 propositions concerning the ministry and the government of the church. And what he does in those three works is really reflects the Puritan attitude that the church is Christ's church that it is his kingdom that is to be built and not the kingdom of our own. They also emphasize, in, and this is the whole directory of worship, that in that church, not only did God ordain a Christ-centered government, but he called for a Christ-centered worship. Now the Puritans basically... Um, Many of you know that most of them were exclusive psalm singers, and one of the motivating facts in all of that was to say, we only pray according to the word, we only sing according to the word, we only preach according to the word, we only worship according to the word. They that worship me must worship me in spirit and truth, and what is the truth? It's the truth of the word. So their services were very simple. It centered around the reading, the preaching, the singing of the Word of God. That's how you would describe a simple Puritan uh, worship service. And the whole directory, that's exactly what it does. It teaches us or tries to open up or summarize for us what we mean by biblical reading of the Word in church, biblical singing of the Word in church, biblical prayer of the Word in church, biblical preaching of the Word in church, biblical administration of the sacraments in the church of Christ. In that, again, we see the production of, and this is, again, probably one of the places that we have become the weakest, maybe not in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but certainly in uh, uh, evangelical Christianity generally. They, they use catechisms to teach that. And they started at an early age. And they catechized, they catechized, they catechized, they catechized, they catechized. And we don't. We don't. One of the things that that we do at Greenville Seminary is they're in a four-year program. We make them basically take exams on the Shorter Catechism uh, in different classes so that the whole uh, Shorter Catechism is covered every year. So they basically, by the time, we hope, by the time they get out of, after four years, that they've gone through it enough times that they'll never forget it. But it's not enough just simply to say that to them. We also have to say to them, and when you get to your churches, this is what you should do with your children from this size all the way up. Catechize them, teach them, catechize them, teach them. And they will profit from the word. And we will have a godly home, God-centered homes, We will have God-centered churches. We will have God-centered 
um, worship that glorifies and magnifies the Lord. And that was the Puritan uh, emphasis uh, with regard to that. Are there any questions? I kept us in the time. Yes, ma'am. Um, where is there, the Old Testament comes in with the preaching. How, how would that look? Uh, they, they didn't, uh, they used the Old Testament a lot. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they did. In fact, some of the Puritans, like um, Joseph Carlyle, uh, his whole ministry, 38 years, he only preached on the book of Job. I mentioned um, Rogers here, uh, Richard Rogers' um, commentary on Judges. I think I read that he preached on that book for like 12 years. Now, I certainly don't advocate that because basically what you'd have seen is that most of those sermons he was preaching on other parts of the Bible, he's just kind of using whatever text he had in front of him in the, in the book of Job to you know, touch other parts of the Bible. And I would have said, well, listen, instead of just spending you know, 37 years on this book, why don't you preach on the rest of the books of the Bible as you're doing anyway, but do it more systematically. But there was a, um, uh, a tremendous use of, of, of the Old Testament among, among the Puritans, yes. I would think so, but I didn't know. Yeah. Sure. Yes, sir. So, uh, one of the things I've learned from Clowney was, you know, Christ <coughs> in the Old Testament. He, that's, that's something he writes about. Is that prominent in the Puritans anyway? Well, he, he's not, Clowney's not viewing that? The first, the first Puritan to, to actually write um, a, uh, a biblical, what we would call a biblical theological. Um, approach to scripture was John Owen. Um, it's copied in some sense in Jonathan Edwards' History of Redemption and basically coming in and looking and seeing Christ in, in uh, all the scripture and the Puritans saw Christ as the center, uh, center of, of scripture uh, in that sense. Um, I don't know that all of them would have agreed with when I took I had biblical theology with uh, Dr. Clowney uh, back in the 70s, and um, he, he, he did a thing where you came in on the first day of the week and he gave us a test to see how much we knew about biblical theology. And then at the end, most of those same questions were on the final, so he was looking to say, well, how much did you know when you come in, and how much do you know when you go out? Have you learned anything by sitting in my class? And the one question that I remember that sticks out in my head is the question, uh, how many messianic psalms are there? And I'm counting, you know, well, Psalm 22, Psalm, you know, going through and talk, trying to figure out and write down the number, and I get it wrong. Well, at the end of the year, when we, we had the final exam, um, it was how many questions are, uh, how many psalms are messianic? And I said, all 150. All 150 psalms point to Christ. Um, I don't know that the Puritans would have agreed with that, necessarily. But I do think in, in, in terms of the overall, their overall understanding. Listen, let me, let me put it this way. The Puritans would say, all Scripture points to Christ. And then they would ask you the question, okay, so how do you, how do you answer the question, how does, and Esau was a hairy man, point to Christ? <laughs> I mean, you know, you put it in that context, you know, the history of redemption, the whole story of Jacob and Esau and everything is all pointing us, taking us to Christ.
but the individual details don't necessarily all make you. So I couldn't preach a Christ-centered sermon just simply on the words, Esau was a hairy man. I mean, what does it mean if I was going to preach just on that phrase? But there's other phrases in Scripture that you can preach. I was telling the guys last night when I was preaching through the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, but God, I preached four sermons on those two words, but God. Okay, you can preach those kinds of things and preach Christ uh, in there. That's, that would have been the Puritan emphasis. And actually, in some sense, I, I think the Puritans would have been very consistent in uh, recognizing as being exclusive psalm, psalm singers that the imprecatory psalms are for the Christian church. And many in the Reformed Church today would, would not agree with that. Question? Yes? Yeah, well, you know, basically, the um, uh, one man wrote a book called um, The uh, uh, War Hymns of the King. And the Puritans would have recognized that uh, there is a battle that takes place and, and that we're in a warfare. Hence Paul writing to us about, well, in fact, if I was to write down the list, there's probably 20 to 25 Puritan works on, on the Christian warfare, Christian in complete armor, um, uh, different, different works. And so basically they would have interpreted the psalms and the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist prays against, in some cases, his own enemies, but in, in terms of the church, the church praying against the enemies of God. And when we confess, as our confession does, that God as our king is subduing all his and our enemies, the our enemies is not my personal enemies, but our enemies as those enemies that are against the church. So that we can say, by the promise of Christ, we will have this victory because the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. And so I can pray those imprecatory psalms against God's enemies and the enemies of the church. Now, to, to just give you how the uh, Puritans worked that out, in that directory of worship, in the pastoral prayer, they actually say we're to pray against the two great enemies of the Christian church. And the first great enemy of the Christian church was Roman Catholicism and apathy. And the second great enemy of the church was the Ottoman Turks and Islam. And that we're to pray for their destruction. And we would use the imprecatory psalms. So when the imprecatory psalms are being prayed, if I believe, in, and I do, when I'm praying there, what I have in mind is those false religions, that they would be destroyed. And the third thing it tells us that we ought to pray for in every one of our prayers following Paul in Romans 11 is for the conversion of the Jews. So they were very specific in terms of, of how they understood those psalms and that work uh, in the present day battle of the spread of Christ's kingdom. And they are prayers that are appropriate for us uh, to pray as Christians. Yes. Uh, you were talking about how that they saw it appropriate to have 
uh, exegetical preaching, topical preaching, catechetical preaching. So would there be, uh, would they have a regular rotation of such, or was it just well, it, yeah, di different, different, you know, situations. So, in other words, some some Puritan congregations. I mean, if you if you look at um, um, uh, Thomas Boston's, for instance, preaching through the Shorter Catechism in his church in in volumes one and two uh, of his works, his, he's just basically using the Catechism as a as a model of theological preaching. What they're saying is. You can preach theology systematically because ultimately when you do it expositorily, you'll hit all the doctrines, but you just don't hit them all at the same time or in the same way. And that can be in some ways detrimental to the hearers because they're not getting a consistent picture of, of theology, which is, again, necessary. Some would say, well, you preach expositorily, but at the same time, you make sure you have that your people are catechizing and that you're catechizing at the church, and so you can support it that way. Topically was mostly came out because, like me, I don't have a pastoral charge now. I get invited to preach at a lot of churches. I can't go in and preach expositorily in the sense of starting at the beginning of Matthew and preach to the end of Matthew. And so, basically, I always preach a text expositorily I open a text but I'm preaching topically because I picked a topic to preach about so tomorrow morning I'm preaching on keeping the heart okay and I'm using a text out of the Proverbs it's not because I'm expositing and going through the Proverbs I use a uh, text in Matthew's gospel it's not because I'm going through Matthew's gospel and I've come to this particular point it's because I'm coming and I've been asked to preach and I need to preach on a topic so I picked a topic to preach on with appropriate text that emphasize that teaching about keeping the heart and what the divines are saying is that's acceptable 